Hello and welcome to another episode of Geeks Crossing. 2022 has been the year of many things, but it has not been the year of Renaissance Matt. This deep dive miniseries covering miscellaneous topics started in 2020 during our first ever season. I managed to squeeze three episodes of Renaissance Mad into that short first season. For contrast, 2022 as a whole has only seen one episode of Renaissance Mad all the way back in March when I talked about Doug. I guess part of me got a little bored with the formula and all the research, and instead I focused my time on more creative episodes, such as my Super Mario Real Estate miniseries. Plus, Elephant in the Room, since I've started working a full-time job, I haven't done as much solo content in general. But special circumstances change everything. This December, 2022, marks the five-year anniversary of something truly unholy and in great need of dissection. Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Now, I know what you're thinking. In great need of dissection, how many times have you geeks talked about The Last Jedi and dragged it through the coals? Well, yes, that has happened a few times. We did an episode on it back in fall 2021. We talked about improving the sequel trilogy in May 2022. And around the same time, we also did a rambly episode, taking the sequel trilogy to school. Heck, Keith and I even did a long ramble episode early in the year in which we talked about The Last Jedi. Though at the time of this recording, that episode hasn't gone in for editing yet. All of this is true. And I was ready to come to peace with this horrible movie and turn a corner in my life. But two things prevented me from moving on, at least just yet. The first was the reveal that Ryan Johnson, the director behind The Last Jedi, is probably still getting his own Star Wars trilogy. Now, maybe this will be kept in development hell forever, but this is truly a terrifying idea after his first romp through Star Wars. The second inspiration for this episode came at the tail end of spring. A group of old friends was talking about Star Wars movies, and I got into the conversation. I was stunned to find out that not only did many of them not mind The Last Jedi, but actively considered it one of the best Star Wars movies to date. The best of the sequels, better than Revenge of the Sith, and even some of them said it was better than Return of the Jedi. I had no idea how anyone could hold these opinions, so I engaged them in conversation and listened to their passionate defense of Episode Eight. I didn't really find that most of these defenses held up. So, in honor of five years since the official nosedive of the Star Wars IP, though the prequels had a host of problems, and I happen to think The Force Awakens sucks quite a lot, we're going to take a deep dive through The Last Jedi and try our best to surgically decipher every single teeny tiny way it ruins everything. And a huge shout out to Mahler, the YouTuber who spent hours upon hours dissecting every frame of The Last Jedi to showcase exactly why it sucks so badly. My research would have been a lot more difficult without him. Rest assured though, I'm not just going off of a second-hand account of The Last Jedi. I actually had to rewatch this giant smoking turd for myself to make sure it was as awful as I remembered. And it was. Let's begin. Since this is a renaissance mat, we'd better first spend some time talking about the history of the movie itself. Once it was announced that there was going to be a Star Wars Episode 7, obviously there was going to be an Episode 8 and an Episode 9. In one of the first major red flags of the new trilogy, J.J. Abrams was announced as the director of Episode 7, and only Episode 7. Say what you will about Abrams, you can like him, you can hate him, but the fact that Lucasfilm executives were planning on having a different director and writing team per movie was not a good sign especially when you consider that the original trilogies had a showrunner, you know, George Lucas himself. It signaled that there would be plenty of discord between the three movies in the sequel trilogy, and oh boy was there ever. Ryan Johnson was announced as the director and writer for Episode 8, and Colin Trevorrow would direct Episode 9. However, when it was time to start work on Episode 9, Trevorrow would not be interested, and the Disney higher-ups refused to rehire Johnson because of the polarization of The Last Jedi. Johnson's directorial record is a mixed bag. I'm personally only seeing his Breaking Bad episodes in The Last Jedi. The Last Jedi sucks. And his Breaking Bad episodes range from amazing, Ozymandias, to stupid, Fly. Yes, I'm one of those people who finds the Fly episode of Breaking Bad ridiculously stupid, but I digress. It's worth noting that Johnson didn't write any of those episodes, though many of his directorial decisions for Breaking Bad can be rightfully commended. When it comes to the stuff he directs and writes, his record is a bit muddier. I've heard mixed things about Knives Out and Glass Onion, and Looper is apparently bizarrely confusing. But in all fairness, I haven't seen any of those movies, so I'm not going to judge. And before you lecture me with, oh, actually, Matt, those movies are above 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, well, so is The Last Jedi. That said, The Last Jedi is certified rotten according to audience scores, unlike Johnson's other films. In fact, one glance at the Wikipedia page for The Last Jedi portrays a massive gaslighting effort. According to these archivists, everyone has always really loved The Last Jedi, even audiences, and the only people who didn't like it were internet trolls. Whoever wrote or edited this Wikipedia article seems to imply that the only reason the audience score is so low on Rotten Tomatoes is because of dislike bombers. 
According to all of those holier-than-thou film critics, though, the film is amazing and subversive, and if you don't like what they did to your characters, it's because you were desperately clinging to your fan theories, not because the writing is crap or anything like that. We'll get to all these common defenses of The Last Jedi as they come up, but I think it's high time we start our slog through this wretched movie. Right at the gate, there's some interesting decisions. Unlike the original trilogy and prequel trilogy, which separate their first and second movies with a time skip of at least a year, The Last Jedi takes place hours after the ending of The Force Awakens. You can't really blame this on Johnson, since Abrams ended his movie with Luke Skywalker hanging out on a mysterious island in the middle of nowhere with no explanation as to why or how he got there. But this lack of the passage of time is going to create some problems, because The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi had two different directors with two different visions for the Star Wars sequel trilogy. We are immediately confronted with massive world-building problems. As a reminder, the First Order, a radical band of Neo-Imperials, have used the Starkiller base to completely blow up the Republic, a weak but respected galactic government stationed on five planets all next to one another and because reasons. With billions of innocent people killed, the First Order, you'd assume, would put a massive target on its back. Even worse for them, the Resistance blows up Starkiller Base, leaving this group of terrorists with no serious weaponry to keep everybody in line. Seeing as the Republic ruled for years, you'd think this would be a perfect time for good in the galaxy to rise up against this pathetic little First Order. Or at least for other powers that be, like the Trade Federation, the Huts, a brand new faction, or any other interested party, to look at the massive power vacuum and rub their hands greedily. Nothing of this sort happens, because that would be too interesting and too new. Instead, we're all just meant to assume that the First Order rose to dominance in the galaxy in a span of a couple of days after destroying a stable government at peacetime, because nobody in the galaxy cares about that sort of thing. The movie starts off with the Resistance hastily abandoning their base from the end of Force Awakens, as a throwaway line in that movie confirmed the fact that the First Order had discovered it. Using a Dreadnought-class Star Destroyer, the First Order closes in on the fleeing Resistance, while Poe Dameron leads a flight of bombers to fight back. Yeah, all right, a good old-fashioned space battle, now we're talking. Except, something's off. Actually, many things are off in this battle. And I'm not just talking about the Yo Mama joke that Poe makes to Hux, because admittedly, I actually cracked a smile at that. The Dreadnought surface cannons fire at Poe, but can't hit him, because, get this, he's too small and too fast. Instead of saying something like, he's just too good a pilot, and he's avoiding all our shots, which would speak to Poe's skills as the best pilot in the Resistance, which are mentioned in The Force Awakens, Instead, we get the ridiculous argument that surface cannons can't shoot small, fast ships on the surface of the Dreadnought. In other words, surface cannons are completely worthless. The other big stinker of the scene comes from the use of the bombers. I know that they're inspired by World War II bombers, and that's cool and all, but they are absolutely worthless in every sense of the term. They move extremely slowly, way slower than a Y-Wing bomber. Okay, well, that makes them bulkier, right? Wrong. One stray TIE fighter half-destroyed careens into three of these bombers and completely obliviates them. How embarrassing. Okay, well, if they're slower than a Y-Wing, and just as weak if not weaker, then maybe their bombs are just extremely potent? My answer to that is, I guess? Credit where it's due, the last bomber is able to eviscerate the entire Dreadnought by dropping its load into an exhaust port, so maybe they are pretty powerful. Then again, X-Wings could do that too, <laughs> as of A New Hope. But the bombs also detonate immediately, which leads to a third flaw. How the hell are these World War II bombers supposed to survive a bombing? With how slow they are and how weak they are, by the time the final bomb falls, the first few bombs are already exploded. Maybe they'd make more sense in the atmosphere of a planet as actual airplanes, but they don't make much sense in space. You've got the introduction of bulkier, slower, weaker, seemingly self-destructive bombers to replace Y-Wings. It's just weird. And I'm not some sweaty nerd that wants them to use Y-Wings just so I can jump up and down in the theater and yell, OMG, Y-Wings! I'm perfectly fine with a new type of bomber, but you gotta make it make sense. And these don't, whatsoever. Despite the fact that they've technically won the day, the Resistance is in a horrible place. Their crappy bombers are all gone, and the entirety of the faction is pretty much hiding out on a sitting duck of a ship, a stone's throw away from the rest of the First Order. The First Order can't take them out because they're so inconveniently far away that they can't protect their TIE fighters if they go to attack. Yes, that's an actual line. These cold, heartless First Order officers don't want to lose any TIE fighter pilots, despite the fact that if they launched a barrage at that very moment, sending TIE fighter after TIE fighter until the Resistance ship is destroyed, literally the entire Resistance other than Rey would be snuffed out. And why can't the Resistance just light speed away? Well, get this, the First Order has just cracked light speed tracking technology. They can now track the Resistance through light speed, and so light speeding away from dangerous forces can never happen again in the Star Wars universe. Nice. What this means is that we get a slow, boring chase scene for most of the movie. 
where the First Order refuses to send TIE fighters to finish the job because of reasons, and the Resistance can't go anywhere or do anything because of reasons. This frustrates Hux just as much as it frustrates me. I actually found Hux to be kind of a cool character in The Force Awakens. We'd never seen anything quite like him, and there was an interesting power dynamic between him and Kylo Ren in this quiet battle for control of the First Order. Drew was a little hammy, but with some adjustment and the natural progression of his character, he could have been one of the more interesting new things attempted by the sequel. Ryan Johnson decided he wasn't interested in this, and instead turned Hux into a giant joke. The Omama thing was fine for what it was, but after the Dreadnought's destroyed, Snoke holographically belittles him and uses the Force from across the galaxy to drag him across the floor like a wet rag. It's almost surprising to me that the writers never have Hux walk into a meeting with the First Order officers and sit on a whoopee cushion. We're going to put aside this absolutely insane Force power of Snoke, attacking someone light years away, something Palpatine himself couldn't do, because it will never be explained. Hux reminds Snoke about the light speed tracking technology, as though Snoke, the leader of the First Order, isn't the one behind these projects and isn't even typically updated on them until they're finished and already in use. Whatever. We'll have a lot to say about Snoke later. His big scene hasn't even happened yet. Speaking of elderly, confusingly written Force users, we then cut to Luke Skywalker. The ending of The Force Awakens is one of the coolest moments of the film, and we continue right where it left off. A member of the new generation of the Resistance has tracked down an aged, honorable veteran as he stares down the weapon with which he helped liberate the entire galaxy. It belonged to his father, and then to him, before it was lost, and then somehow randomly found in between episodes 6 and 7 for the sole reason of nostalgia. Either way, Luke sees this lightsaber again, holds it in his hands, for the first time since, or for the first time since he even had two hands. It's a masterfully respectful moment to the original trilogy, and to the character of Luke Skywalker, that gets completely interrupted when Luke tosses the thing over his shoulder like a banana peel. He then refuses to help, and even after being questioned by Luke and Chewbacca, he doesn't seem to care. This is the first time he's seen Chewbacca in years, but even that doesn't knock him out of his newly found, uncharacteristic apathy. Side note, for whatever reason, Rey translates Chewbacca for Luke, which doesn't make any sense. Luke knew Chewbacca for years and eventually learned to understand him, while Rey has known him for maybe a day or two after living her entire life on an isolated desert planet. I guess The Last Jedi writers forgot these two points when you could have easily had Luke responding directly to whatever Chewie's saying to help out the audience. Whatever. Seeing Chewie in the Millennium Falcon, Luke asks Rey where the heck Han Solo is, and then the scene cuts away. One socially acceptable criticism of The Last Jedi on the Wikipedia page seems to be that it's just another Star Wars movie shamelessly coasting on nostalgia. I mean, I guess if you consider just saying the name Luke Skywalker coasting on nostalgia, then yes, The Last Jedi is, but that misses the point. The Last Jedi not only misses the beats and payoffs that would come from nostalgia, but in an effort to be as subversive as possible, it actively avoids them. There would be a huge payoff in Luke hearing what happened to Han Solo and responding to it. This is one of Luke's closest lifelong friends, one of the very first people he met while trying to get off of Tatooine. This was the husband of his sister. This was the father of Ben Solo, who at this point we know Luke trained and failed somehow. Luke is told that Ben Solo slaughtered his father, and Luke doubtlessly responds with some emotion, but we don't get to see any of it. The movie doesn't show us. The writers and director don't think the scene is important, when it's one of the most important payoffs from The Force Awakens. How will the lost Luke Skywalker react to the death of Han Solo? We never find out. I suppose this is just a minor gripe, but we've known these characters for 40 years at this point. You know, you might want to treat them like it. The scene that the script rushes past Luke's reaction to Han's death to reach is a scene in which Snoke tells Kylo Ren that he finds his mask ridiculous. Well, okay, he also calls Kylo Ren stupid for the obvious reason. Why the hell hasn't the First Order launched an attack on those resistance sitting ducks yet? Fair point. But he also tells Kylo Ren to take his mask off. This is an example of creator opinion over world building or sense. So, yes, very similar to the World War II bombers, angsty Luke, and other problems we haven't gotten to yet. Ryan Johnson wanted Kylo Ren to take his mask off and keep it off. He's been upfront about that in interviews. But the situation he designed in the script to force Kylo Ren to take his mask off makes absolutely no sense. Why would the evil, mega-powerful, dark side force user, the one who has presumably been training Kylo Ren since his turn to the dark side, never mentioned the mask thing before? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. If you want Kylo's mask off, have him break it in some close skirmish, or have him discover that the good guys don't take him seriously when he wears it. Something. Don't have the guy who literally saw him with his mask in the last movie and said absolutely nothing be the guy who demands him to take his mask off. This isn't rocket science. And then we cut back to Luke and Rey, conveniently after his almost certainly emotional reaction to Han Solo's death. Phew, good thing we cut away to see a plot hole. Luke tells Rey that there's no way he's helping the Resistance, and tries to go about his life like Rey isn't even there. This is the infamous scene where he milks a giant, bizarre, fleshy manatee creature on the beach, and the creature stares at Rey while he does it. This is far from the worst scene in the movie, and I get that Johnson was trying to portray Luke's regular life and how he survived on this island for so long, 
But wouldn't it have made sense to design some Star Wars version of a cow or a goat or something rather than an animal that really doesn't look like it belongs there at all? Seriously, this creature looks bipedal and it's just stretched back, maxing and relaxing as Luke goes to town. It's just a weird, uncomfortable scene. And the cherry on top is that Luke drinks the milk completely unpasteurized immediately after drinking it. We also learn that Luke has come here to completely cut himself away from the Force. First, how do you even do that? Isn't the Force everywhere? Second, why would you go to an island that has the original Jedi Temple in order to cut yourself off from the Force? Wouldn't this be a Force bastion? I'm pretty sure this is just an excuse to explain why nobody could reach Luke with the Force, and how he has no idea about the anguish going on in the galaxy, the death of Han, the suffering of Leia, the uncertainty of Kylo, but it makes absolutely no sense. We then come back to the Resistance ship with virtually every Resistance player on it, the Radis. Leia has Poe demoted because he blatantly ignored her directions to retreat, and instead engaged with the Dreadnought earlier, costing every single Resistance bomber in the process. I agree that disobeying orders can be drowned for demotion, but think about it. Poe destroyed a fleet killer, but it cost him those stupid bombers. If the Resistance had attempted to flee, but you saw the speed of those bombers, they would have been destroyed regardless, possibly even by one or two TIE fighters for the whole lot of them. Speaking of, the First Order finally decides to engage with the Resistance, bringing a whole bunch of TIE fighters in attack led by a now maskless Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren somehow shoots into the hangar bay of the Radis and isn't completely destroyed in retaliation, and then the bridge of the Radis is blown up. Yeah, you know, the bridge where all the officers are, the entirety of the Resistance command. And it is explicitly mentioned earlier that the Radis is shielded, which means that the shields don't cover the bridge? Imagine if the bridge was just this completely vulnerable area on any other ship in the Star Wars canon. All you'd have to do to disable a Star Destroyer would be to blow up the bridge and then the crew's running around with no orders. But whatever happens, almost all of the commanding officers in the Resistance are hurled into the void of space, including beloved series icon Admiral Akbar. Though we only know this due to a throwaway line, because why give classic characters respectful death scenes? Even a cut to his body in space with sad music would have given audiences a sense of the gravity of the situation. The only one who gets this death scene is Leia. Kylo Ren didn't want to fire on the bridge because he could sense his mother was in there, but nonetheless, the First Order takes it out, rendering the Radis an even bigger sitting duck than it already was. That said, the First Order's plan is to just sit there and slowly chase the Radis until it runs out of fuel and shields. Once again, this is all assuming the First Order has some great value of life and wouldn't just send squadron of TIE Fighter after squadron of TIE Fighter over and over and over again until the Radis is destroyed. Because once again, due to crappy world building, there is literally no other challenger to the brand new reign of the First Order than the people on this one ship. Could they not call some other ships in some other part of the galaxy to light speed over and take out the Radis? Could they not shoot longer range weapons at the Radis from their Star Destroyer? I don't mean to sound like I'm on the side of the First Order here, but the movie gives them a massive advantage and then just says, oh, but the Resistance is fine, LMAO. It doesn't make any sense. Side note, why do all the Resistance members suddenly know about the First Order's light speed tracking technology and about the identity of Snoke when he was a mysterious shadowy figure in The Force Awakens? I guess you could say that the former Stormtrooper Finn told them all, especially considering they make up some BS lore that he used to mop the floors in the light speed tracking room and Snoke's personal ship. Yes, he also mopped the floors in the Starkiller base because Finn's custodial jobs in the First Order were wherever it was most convenient for the story writers for him to be. But that's not all. The cherry on top of this absolute fever dream of a scene is that the camera cuts to Leia's corpse floating aimlessly in the wreckage of the bridge when all of a sudden she starts flying towards the Radis, still unconscious, somehow not dead from just being in the vacuum of space that long. Yes, despite Carrie Fisher's real-life death during the development of The Last Jedi, they chose not to kill off Leia. Presumably, they hated the idea of a scene where Luke had to react to the death of his sister, much how they hated the idea of a scene where Luke had to react to the death of his best friend. But jokes aside, what the hell is the point of this? Leia was hinted to be somewhat Force-sensitive, yes, and she may have trained a bit in 30 years' time. Fine. But first off, she doesn't show any signs of this level of Force-sensitivity in The Force Awakens or earlier in The Last Jedi. And second... Nobody comments on this ability of Leia's before or after she does it. She's floating in space, and she can just unconsciously save herself with the Force, and when and then she's just sitting on a stretcher in the Radis, and nobody brings up what she did to get there. They're just assuming it's, oh yeah, that's great, she's back. The next scene is actually sort of sweet. I mean, after the scene of Chewbacca playing with the inhabitants of Luke's Island, little creatures called Porgs, that's a decent little scene all on its own, but once you know that this will pretty much be the full extent of Chewie's time on screen in this movie... It's just depressing. No, the nice scene is the reunion between Luke and R2-D2. R2 is just as desperate for Luke to help the Resistance as anyone else, though R2 had none of that drive in The Force Awakens when he put himself into sleep mode for years only to randomly wake up one day and reveal he had the exact coordinates to Luke, but R2's feeling helpful now and shows Luke the old recording of Leia from A New Hope. 
Luke realizes that he's in the same position as his former mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, one of the last Jedi who can help a faction led by Leia stop an evil empire. I mean, it's actually scarily similar, thanks to J.J. Abrams. Luke still refuses to go fight, because reasons, but now he's willing to train Rey, who he has sensed is extremely Force-sensitive. Cut back to the Radis, and we learn that, since Admiral Ackbar is dead, the Resistance needs a new Admiral. An officer named Holdo, who wasn't on the bridge earlier, because of reasons, is promoted to this role, introducing one of the most mind-numbingly stupid characters in this movie. Just from looking at her, there's so much that doesn't make any sense. Why is her hair purple? This isn't a natural color in the Star Wars universe, so it means that some 50-year-old woman is dyeing her hair purple. Okay, weird. But even less forgivable, why is she wearing a freaking gown? This is a military situation. Look at Leia, who wears a jumpsuit when we first see her in The Force Awakens. Yes, Leia wore a gown in A New Hope, but that's because she's traveling under the guise of a diplomatic mission as the Princess of Alderaan. There's no reason for Holo to be in a gown when the last thing she presumably did was frantically flee the Resistance's last base. Are we supposed to believe she just lounges around and bosses others, rarely running around and getting her hands dirty? Because if that's the case, then why wasn't she on the bridge? Holder's first act as Admiral is to promise that she has a plan that will save them all. She then proceeds to tell nobody the plan. And when Poe asks about it, she calls him a reckless moron who endangered everyone with the Dreadnought attack. Okay. I really haven't touched upon Finn because Finn hasn't had much to do up to this point. You'll recall that at the end of The Force Awakens, he was seriously wounded by Kylo Ren's lightsaber. We speculated he would be scarred, incapacitated, perhaps requiring droid parts or a back to tank just to move around. Anything that would remind us and him of what life as an enemy of the First Order is like. Funnily enough, this would have actually lent itself nicely to the sloppy arc they made for Finn and The Last Jedi. But no, J.J. Abrams sent Ryan Johnson a mystery box of open possibilities, and Johnson tossed it aside and announced to everyone that there was absolutely nothing in it. That could be the running theme of the sequel trilogy. Again, I don't like The Force Awakens, but it left unanswered questions for Episode Eight to play around with. And in this instance, Finn awakens from something no less inconvenient than an awkward nap. He stumbles around the Radis like a buffoon for a few minutes with tubes from the back of the tank sticking out of him, desperately looking for Rey. When things go sour on the Radis, Finn flees to the escape pods. In his mind, he's not in it for the Resistance, especially since they seem to be a sinking ship. He's loyal to Rey, not to Poe, his first friend and the first person to take a chance on him, but screw that strong friendship we saw in the first five minutes of The Force Awakens. No, Finn is after the second friend he ever had. So he wants to flee the Radis to warn Rey that the Resistance is seemingly about to be snuffed out. Unfortunately for Finn, there's someone in the way of this mission. Another new character called Rose. Rose is the sister of that final bomber pilot who blew up the Dreadnought at the cost of her life. So she's mourning when she meets Finn in the escape pod room. Why is she hanging out in the escape pod room? Maybe to mourn in solitude? No, specifically to prevent people from leaving the Resistance. Rather than make her jaded, Rose's sister's death has left Rose even more convinced that the Resistance is worth dying for. Rather disturbingly, this seems to imply that nobody is allowed to leave the Resistance. Really? This isn't an official military division, this is a ragtag group of rebels. Is someone telling Rose to prevent anyone from leaving? Does anyone know? Has anyone signed off on this? Or is this just some person guarding the escape pods with the express purpose of telling anyone who might be having second thoughts to suck it up and die with the rest of them? In case you haven't noticed, Rose is also not going to be a very good character either. Though that's not saying much because just about every character in this movie sucks. The new ones are crap and the old ones have turned to crap. Much like in The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker, the droids really do seem to be the only exception, as BB-8, R2-D2, and C-3PO are just as charming as ever. Yes, the characters designed to be automatons are more likable than the human cast. Good grief. But let's move on. After being told he can't run away, Finn does a complete 180 and decides that he doesn't even want to run away and instead wants to sneak into the First Order ship and disable the lightspeed tracker. In a span of 30 seconds, Finn goes from wanting to abandon ship to volunteering himself for a daring resistance mission. I'd say I'm surprised that the amount of whiplash didn't hurt him, but then again, neither did Kylo Ren's lightsaber, so whatever. To get into the First Order ship, they first have to break a code on the ship's shield so they'll need a code breaker. Naturally, there's no suitable code breakers in the Resistance, so they call up Maz Kanata. Yeah, you remember her, Han Solo's friend from The Force Awakens. Maz calls from some high-speed motorcycle chase, despite the fact that the last time we saw her, a couple days ago, her centuries-old business had been destroyed by a First Order attack. But they had to squeeze her into this movie somewhere, so after telling Finn and Rose about a codebreaker friend of hers hanging out on the casino world of Canto Bite, she makes a sex joke and hangs up, disappearing from the movie for good. Finn and Rose tell their plan to Poe who agrees that it's a good idea, but then begins one of the stupidest conversations in the whole sequel trilogy. Rose says that it was luck that brought her and Finn together, and Poe replies, was it good luck? Who the hell asks that? The phrase we met through luck is always, always, always implied to be good luck. But 
especially in this situation. Poe believes the resistance situation is hopeless right now with Leah in a coma and a blowhard in charge of everything when his buddy and a new friend come to him with a plan that he likes. Why would that sound even remotely like bad luck to him? But then we wouldn't have had the outrageously clever line from Rose, I don't know if it was good luck yet. Outstanding. Writing showing its strings. We need to have this line in our script because I think it's badass. But the situation really doesn't make any sense for it. Oh well, throw it in anyway. Hopefully the audience won't notice. Brilliant. So, Finn, Rose, and BB-8 take off towards Canto Bight, and nobody in the First Order shoots at them. <laughs> Finn is piloting the little ship they take, despite the fact that he mentions multiple times in The Force Awakens that he doesn't have any piloting abilities. I genuinely believe Ryan Johnson forgot that. Rose's sister worked on a bomber. Plus, hello, Rose is a brand new character. You could have easily had her be the one to pilot them and create no plot holes. But you went out of your way to create one. How do so many people think this movie is a masterpiece? Let's just get back to Rey and Luke. Luke becomes a more whimsical, Yoda-esque teacher while tickling Rey with the Force in what would have kind of been a cute scene in a better episode 8. Unfortunately, it's interrupted by Rey involuntarily shooting lightning at Luke as though it was a fart. Luke freaks out and runs back to his house when Rey and Kylo Ren share one of the stupidest new Force powers in what is humorously called a Force Skype call in online circles. Basically, Rey and Kylo Ren can just see each other and even converse with each other when they just focus hard enough, or maybe if just one of them focuses hard enough, the rules are weird, they don't make any sense. You'd think other Force-powerful characters would have been able to do this at any other point in the franchise. Luke, Yoda, Vader, Palpatine, any of the hundreds of Jedi Masters and Knights during the prequels, but they obviously never do. It would have been quite helpful in many scenes, so if they never used this ability, we must have assumed that they never had access to it. The Last Jedi never bothers to explain why this ability just appeared, and why only Kylo Ren and Rey are able to perform it, so I don't see why I should care. And yes, I know The Rise of Skywalker kind of explains it because they're like a forced dyad, but that's ridiculously stupid, so let's move on. The two of them talk about feelings and whatnot, and then we cut back to Finn, Rose, and BB-8 arriving on Canto Bight. Finn illegally parks their spacecraft, and yes, a parking violation actually will come back to haunt him in a Star Wars movie. They wander around this bland, bloated, CGI-filled casino that would feel right at home in Attack of the Clones, which came out 15 years before this movie, and Rose tells Finn about how this planet is full of evil capitalists getting richer during the Star Wars. Spoiler alert, the entirety of the Cantobite subplot ends up being completely, utterly pointless, both in terms of the plot and the character development. So the sole reason it seems to exist is for this little political soapbox stuff. That said, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. If I was asked who was more evil, the guy who gets paid to build TIE fighters, or the guy who obliterated five planets containing potentially trillions of people, it would be the latter, hands down. The First Order is evil. These Canto Bite dwellers are just opportunists. Maybe not the best, but not the worst. Plus, how does Rose even know all this? Maz Kanata was the one who told her and Finn about Canto Bite in the first place. How the hell does she know the exact identities and backstories of every person in this casino? Maybe some of them are just innocent rich people who made their money in real estate or something, and they just like to gamble. Maybe some of them are resistance sympathizers. Maybe some of them are they just like the atmosphere. Maybe some of them are spies, just like Rose and Finn. Point is, Rose is just stereotyping here because she has no clue what she's talking about any more than Finn would. Let's cut back to Rey, who is in training when she once again causes Luke to flee back to his house in fear. Yeah, that's the Luke Skywalker I remember. After three movies of development, the big lesson he takes away is to watch everything from the shadows like a coward and run away if you're spotted or if anything doesn't go your way. Luke then tells Rey that the Jedi allowed Darth Vader and the Empire to rise, and that therefore the Jedi are worthless and should be left in the ash heap of history. This is a piss-poor excuse. Luke knew his father and saw his turn back to the light at the end of his life. I get the meta reason for Luke saying this. The Last Jedi is the first time we're seeing an adult Luke Skywalker since before the prequels. But in-universe, it makes no sense. The fact that Snoke and Kylo Ren are out there means that even just to be balanced, you need a couple of Jedi right now. Luke knows this, and he was never even one of those there needs to be a balance, a good and bad side of the Force kind of guy. If that were true, he would have just tried to live and let live with the Emperor. Luke must realize we in the audience are completely lost, so he decides to drop his tragic backstory. It doesn't help. After the return of the Jedi, Han and Leia have a son, Ben, who is Force-sensitive. Luke takes Ben and many other Force-sensitive children to train, but he senses the dark side in Ben. Ben realized that Luke knew his true colors and then burned the Jedi school to the ground. The other Jedi students were either killed fighting back or joined Ben. Fun fact, we never meet any of them. Awesome. Here's the real kicker. Ben doesn't even check if Luke is dead. The Jedi Master, who he apparently loathes with a passion to the point that he destroys the Jedi Temple, isn't worth burning or burying or launching into space or anything. I literally just picture Luke lying out in the open, closing his eyes and waiting for Ben to foolishly move along. 
He must have thought I was dead is Luke's exact line in the movie. Ben couldn't sense Luke's very much alive presence with the Force or anything. Oh, whatever. Fun fact, this 20-second scene, and one that adds another 10 seconds of context later, is the only lore we ever get to explain how both Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren became the people they are at this stage in the canon. I mean, maybe there's comics or something, but I genuinely hate it when you're watching a movie and someone says, I know this major plot point makes no sense whatsoever, but if you read some comics, it will. That means the movie can't stand up on its own. After hearing the story, Rey once again asks Luke to come help the Resistance, and he once again says no. Good grief, what an embarrassment. We briefly cut back to the Radis, where a nearby medical frigate is destroyed by the First Order. Holdo hears the captain of the frigate issue his final communication before dying an honorable, tragic death. She then proceeds to continue to tell no one her plan. What follows is a real contender for the stupidest scene in the entire movie. I am dead serious. We cut back to Finn and Rose goofing off in the casino when they spot Maz's codebreaker at a high-stakes table. Finally, they found their guy. Unfortunately, the Cantobite police show up and arrest the group for their parking violation and throw them into prison. Guess who's also in prison? Another codebreaker who is just as good at his job and just as willing to help them. He's also perfectly capable at breaking out of prison, but he was just hanging out in the cell because reasons. Because the plot demanded it. We couldn't go with the original Maz-endorsed Codebreaker because it wouldn't be subversive enough. So let's have our heroes thrown in prison and meet another Codebreaker who also has jailbreaking abilities, but he hasn't broken out of jail yet because the writers needed him to meet Finn and Rose. Give me a break. The Codebreaker's named DJ. He's a character, and since he's a master jailbreaker, he can now break out of jail. He lets Finn, Rose, and BB-8 out, and then he goes his separate ways. I guess the squad doesn't need a Codebreaker after all, then. Okay. Finn and Rose walk through the stables, where Rose bonds with the abused alien racehorses and the abused slaves. Wait, what? Why does one of the richest planets in the galaxy have human slave labor? This once again makes sense from a meta perspective. The writers presumably want to keep their ingenious capitalism criticism going. But in the Star Wars universe, slave labor is redundant outside of places like Mos Espa, where the poor breed their children into slavery to put a roof over their head. I suppose this could be the case on Canto Bite, but I mean, droids? Anyone ever heard of droids? I can buy that droids are pricey, which is why poorer areas of the Star Wars universe might still use slavery, but one of the wealthiest places we've ever seen? Why wouldn't they be using droids for their labor? Droids are easier to boss around, more precise in their abilities, easier to replace, less likely to get sick or rebel or anything. But again, that starves you of the woe is me moment, so we have human slaves in a billionaire's clubhouse in a universe in which advanced droids are readily available. Rose also flashes the sign of the resistance to the slave boy she meets, as though to say, we're the good guys, we're here to free you. But this once again ignores the pitiful lack of world building. And another drawback to having no time skip between episodes 7 and 8. Cantobite has presumably been engaging in slavery for more than one day. The Republic was the galactic government in charge for the last 30 years. Why would Rose flashing the symbol of the Republic's little allied faction mean anything to that slave boy? In fact, it might piss him off even more. This woman represents the government that allowed him to be enslaved. Heck, maybe some of those gamblers were members or friends of members of the Republic government. All of this would be too interesting and multifaceted, so it's ignored once again in the interest that we don't notice that this little timeline doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm not even convinced Ryan Johnson caught that mistake himself. Seeing this slave boy and the sad animals inspire Finn and Rose to trash Canto Bite, riding these alien racehorses into the casino, trashing everything, presumably taking at least a couple of lives in addition to injuries and property damage. They ride these animals into the wild, where we get another absolutely ridiculous exchange. Finn tells Rose, It was worth it to tear up that town to make them hurt. Rose replies to Finn after freeing the racehorses, Now it's worth it. First off, make them hurt? When has the mission of the Resistance ever been expressed as, making people we think might not be nice hurt, or making rich people hurt. Finn wanted to cause property damage to hurt some rich people. Imagine the original Rebels doing something that petty. Imagine Luke, Han, and Leia coming up to the personal car of some wealthy guy who donated to a factory that now makes the TIE Fighters. Then the three of them key his car and snicker to themselves as they run off into the bushes. It would have been a stupid petty scene then, and it's a stupid petty scene now, with less developed characters. Not to mention, much like that rich guy, these rich casino people likely have insurance to help them cover the cost of damage. And we know they have slaves to help them clean it all up. So, yeah, meaningless damage. Nice job, guys. Then there's Rose's response that only freeing the large animals makes this daring attack worth it. Sometimes you'll hear arguments from misguided animal rights activists who think zoos are prisons, but this argument is faulty. First off, animals aren't sentient. 
Second off, zoos have done a lot of good for humanity and a lot of good for animals in terms of saving critically endangered species and studying animals we don't know much about. The third reason zoos are important, and the fact that makes Rose's argument fall apart, is that zoo animals can't be released. They've spent all or most of their lives in captivity and cannot adapt with wild populations. They quickly die or return to humans. Meaning, yes, these creatures our heroes let into the wild will pr probably either die or return to the stables on their own volition. Oh, and speaking of the stables, why not save the slave boy? They go through all of this fuss. Rose literally says the whole operation's worth it just to save these abused alien horses. And then they leave the abused human child sitting in manure, along with the duty of cleaning the giant mess Finn made in the casino to make him hurt. If that slave boy didn't hate the resistance before, I'm sure he hates them now. Trapped at the cliff's edge, and with Canto Bite police in fast pursuit, Rose and Finn are suddenly rescued by DJ, who tells them that he will help them break the code to the First Order ship, and will let them onto his ship immediately without negotiating any payment. Luke then attempts to contact Leia with the Force, but he can't because she's comatose. Meanwhile, Ray Skype calls Kylo Ren again. She confronts him about why he murdered his father, and then blushes because he's not wearing a shirt. Kylo Ren then presents his side of the story, sense some dark side in Ben, so he attacked him in the middle of the night. In response to being attacked by his mentor, Ben committed himself to a galactic tyranny and genocide. <laughs> a rational next step, of course. Rey then visits this weird forest-dwelling spot on the island and plunges into a pool of water, which she can perfectly swim in despite being raised on a desert planet. Interestingly, this follows a scene in which it starts pouring rain on the island and Rey enthusiastically runs around laughing. It's a really nice scene that speaks to Rey's innocence, which could have been a trait she had if they decided Rey needed things like traits, as well as a nice nod to the pre-established lore that she lived her entire life in an area where water was quite hard to come by. She'd never seen rain before. This tells me that someone in this movie cared, at least for a little. But a couple of minutes later and Rey can flawlessly swim. She swims out of the pit and once again catches Luke peeping at her from the shadows before running off like a coward yet again. This time, Rey stops her, demanding he tell her the true story of what happened that fateful night where Ben Solo turned to the dark side. Luke's story now is that he sensed the dark side in Ben Solo and actually did briefly plot to kill him. He took out his lightsaber over his sleeping nephew before thinking better of it. At that moment, though, Ben woke up and saw Luke standing over his bed with a lightsaber, thought that his doubts were being realized, and went on that rampage we heard about earlier. Whenever anyone tries to tell me that Luke Skywalker was perfectly in character during The Last Jedi, and I just didn't like the choices they went with, I bring up this scene. Luke's father was a Sith Lord, and the moment he found that out, he became committed to saving him, despite the role he'd played in a heartless regime of tyranny and terror. In The Last Jedi, Luke has a nightmare about his young nephew and immediately contemplates killing him in his sleep. I hope I don't have to explain how little sense that makes. Even through all of this shame, Luke still refuses to help save his sister and the Resistance, so Rey finally leaves. Luke then goes to the Jedi Temple, seeking to burn it to the ground, when he's stopped by the Force Ghost of Yoda. I really want to like this scene. I remember when I first saw the camera pan past Yoda's big ears, my heart skipped a beat. But once again, the world building takes a massive hit, this time in two areas rather than one. Yoda summons a bolt of lightning to destroy the Jedi Temple as a way to teach Luke a lesson. It has the desired effect of instilling Luke's confidence in Rey and persuading him that the Jedi cause and the Resistance cause is not worth abandoning. But how the hell can Force Ghost summon lightning? Can Force Ghost Yoda, Anakin, and Obi-Wan use just like can they just launch an, a lightning attack against the First Order whenever they want? I could sort of buy the explanation that this island is just really, really powerful in the Force even if it once again makes Luke's announcement that he came here to cut himself off from the Force humorously stupid. But this doesn't deal with the second lore break for moment from this scene. How long has Luke been on this island? Why did Yoda just show up now? Why didn't Yoda or Obi-Wan or Anakin show up to try to talk Luke out of his cynicism in the years before? Did they just not feel like it? Because this pep talk is long overdue. It could have actually made more of a difference if Luke was re-inspired at any point before the Starkiller base was operational and took out the Galactic Government a couple days ago. Better late than never, I guess. We cut back to Finn and the gang. DJ tells Rose that he wants her necklace as a payment for doing the job for the Resistance. This is a necklace that Rose's sister gave her before she died, so Finn cautions her against giving it away, but Rose does so anyway. DJ then goes into some strange moral relativism speech about how nobody's good or evil, which shocks Finn for some reason. We then get another cut back to the Radis. Poe seems to realize that the only plan Holdo has is to dump the Resistance members into the escape transport, and is furious that they're literally just sitting here and Holdo isn't doing anything or saying anything to anyone. Chewbacca drops Rey off at the First Order's main ship, the Supremacy, and 
She tells him to pick her up later. Remember in A New Hope how difficult it was to get in and out of the Death Star? Our heroes had to use a lot of cunning, and it was a stressful situation. Now, Chewbacca can fly the Millennium Falcon straight up to the lead ship of the First Order fleet and not be shot at or even spotted by anyone, and Rey can casually hop right off and say, hey, swing by later and pick me up. What a joke. Back on the Radis, Poe tries a last-ditch effort to make a plan with Holdo, but Holdo refuses, insisting that she already has a plan, but nobody else can know it. Understandably pissed, Poe stages a desperate mutiny, since it's really starting to look like this Admiral is either profoundly stupid or maybe even a First Order mole stalling for time. Holdo tells Poe that he's making a huge mistake, and in response to what has really looked like either stupid or treacherous leadership from her thus far, Poe decides to not lock her up in the brig or even check her for weapons. Are you serious? Hey, me and my men are commandeering this vessel. Now please don't try to stop us or shoot back. We won't lock you up or anything, and you can hold on to any weapons you may have. Just give up and let bygones be bygones. Nice script. Real nice script. Finn, Rose, DJ, and BB-8 break onto the supremacy around the time that Rey is confronting Kylo Ren. One of the first things Rey says to Kylo Ren is that she believes he is good, despite the fact that he has slaughtered thousands, including his own father and Rey's father figure a few days earlier. But we have to do the thing that happened in Return of the Jedi, even if the dynamic is completely different. Actually, you know who should have been saying the lines Rey is currently spouting? Luke! He has reason to believe he was wrong and that there is good left in his nephew. But we don't have Luke. He's currently stranded on an island. We have to make do with Rey, with whom these lines don't make any sense. Cool. Anyway, in response, Kylo Ren tells Rey that he's not good. She's evil. She seems to seriously consider this for a moment. But the only slightly evil thing we've ever seen her do is accidentally launch some electricity from her fingertips for a split second. She wasn't even trying. Outside of that... Throughout The Force Awakens, we learn that Rey is an extremely kind-hearted and innocent person. She takes a chance on BB-8 when she first meets him. She immediately shines to everyone she meets, whether it be Finn or Han Solo. Heck, she spends the first half of the movie trying to convince Luke that there's good worth fighting for and to have hope. But apparently that's the definition of evil. That or Rey has the same amount of knowledge of personality that we do. That is to say, no knowledge of her personality. Because she can't come up with any arguments against Kylo Ren. Unsurprisingly, Holdo quickly recovers from the most pathetic mutiny in history. Since she wasn't locked up or disarmed, she quickly makes her way back to Poe. Meanwhile, DJ reveals that the reason he took Rose's necklace was because it had the perfect material for some hacking he needed to do, and then he promptly gives it right back to her, meaning that he's currently doing this mission for them completely on the house. That isn't explained. It's off or not, though, as they are spotted by a First Order BB unit and quickly apprehended by none other than Captain freaking Phasma. That's right, she's alive. I'm not sure how. I guess I can buy that she clawed her way out of a trash chute or found some exit somewhere. On the Radis, Poe is shot by Leia. Yeah, Leia wakes up from her coma and shoots Poe with a stun gun? What the actual heck? Holdo and Leia yuck it up like old buddies, and Holdo rushes everyone onto the transports so that she can stay behind and pilot the Radis. The writers once again forget that droids exist, or heck, even an autopilot. Holdo's master plan this whole time was to pilot the Radis directly into the Supremacy by jumping to light speed and ramming into the Supremacy at high speed. Finn and Rose are also updated on this plan. They blab about it out loud. It also makes their subplot completely worthless, by the way, but, you know, whatever. Um, if Holdo had just told everyone this plan, <laughs> they wouldn't have had to leave the Radis. Also, this doesn't make any sense because if it was possible in the Star Wars universe to light speed a ship into a bigger ship... Literally anyone would have done it against the Trade Federation battleships, Star Destroyers, and Death Stars that we've seen before. We would have seen it from either passionate rebels seeking to make an ultimate effective sacrifice, or intelligent rebels tricking out dense ships with autopilots and launching them as homemade lightspeed atom bombs. Ryan Johnson was apparently assured by lore experts that this did not break canon. I hope those lore experts were fired. Also, again, why didn't Holdo tell anyone this plan? Why didn't she tell Poe this plan? While Holdo and Leia are yucking it up, Holdo tells Poe she's always liked him, so it can't be because she didn't trust him or anything. Could it be because the movie needed to be subversive? The rest of the Resistance is going to be jetting towards Crate. This planet is conveniently right below them, there's conveniently an old rebel base there, and it's conveniently highly fortified. How convenient. This is the moment where Finn's subplot becomes worthless. Again, all you have to do is have Holdo tell the Resistance this plan, Finn wouldn't have to go on a wild goose chase to disable a lightspeed tracker if the ship with the lightspeed tracker was going to be sliced into pieces by the Radis. Poe's arc, if you can call it that, is also pointless, since it just boils down to him getting frustrated that some idiot admiral refuses to tell anyone her plan for saving the day. Alright, back to Rey. Kylo leads her to Snoke, in a confrontation that's been hinted at since The Force Awakens, when Snoke ominously told Kylo, 
If what you've said about this girl is true, bring her to me. Ooh, I wonder what Snoke wants with Rey. Well, Snoke tells Rey, point blank, that she will tell him where Luke Skywalker is hiding, and then he will kill her. So much for the mystery there. Snoke, this all-powerful dark side user, manages to pull this information directly from Rey's head and then tosses her to Kylo Ren for the killing. Meanwhile, DJ is paid off by the First Order to tell them everything he heard about the Resistance plan to evacuate into transport ships, the plan he overheard Finn and Rose blabbing about. I didn't know the First Order were the types to say, Hey there, we know you're more of a neutral party, and yeah, we caught you breaking into our main ship, but we'll toss you some money and send you on your way if you give us some intel. I figured DJ was much more likely to be tortured first and questioned later before maybe getting thrown out penniless if he was lucky. The only potential alternative is that DJ had been a First Order plant from the beginning, but that doesn't explain why the First Order would have a spy hanging out in a random jail cell in Canto Bight when they had no idea the Resistance would send anyone there. Let's just agree that this is another stupid inconsistency and leave it at that. DJ is paid handsomely and allowed to leave, where he disappears from the Star Wars franchise forever. The First Order begins firing at the Radis' transports, though of course Poe's and Leia's aren't touched because they're main characters, and Hux orders Finn and Rose executed. But not before Rose bites Hux's finger and Hux cries out in agony and pitifully tries to get away from her grip like the circus clown he is now. Phasma insists that blasters are too good for them and stormtroopers bring out these dorky looking light powered medieval axes to execute Finn and Rose. I don't get it, seeing as being beheaded by an axe means no suffering at all, whereas blasters could be fired at Finn and Rose's legs or arms or something where they could be forced to linger. It's almost like the blasters are too good for them line is to delay Finn and Rose's executions. It's the first part of one of the most pathetically poorly planned scenes in the entire Star Wars franchise. I'm aware that that's saying a lot, but this scene is just about the shoddiest example of writing showing its strings. Phasma randomly deciding to delay Finn and Rose's execution is just the beginning. Rey attempts to attack Snoke, but Snoke stops her dead in her tracks, lifting her into the air and toying with her. This is clearly an extremely powerful Force user, perhaps the most powerful we've ever seen in the Star Wars universe. Seeing as he's the sole reason why the galaxy has fallen back in the Civil War, he must be a pretty darn important character. Can't wait to see what we learn about him. Snoke shows Rey that the First Order is firing at the Resistance transports, despite the fact that Snoke would have never known about the discovery of these transports. Maybe he just has a secret walkie-talkie that we didn't see and Hux mentioned it to him. I don't know. But what I do know is that Rey's goose is cooked. Snoke tells Kylo it is time to kill Rey, and Kylo kills Snoke instead. This would have been a lot cooler if Snoke's last words weren't the most ham-fisted sludge any Star Wars character has ever uttered with their final breaths. For a guy who fancies himself Captain Subversion, it really is shocking that Ryan Johnson chose to have Snoke's final monologue be a jeering mockery of Rey for even thinking Kylo could be turned to the light side. He tells her that he cannot be betrayed and that Kylo Ren will kill his true enemy. Yeah, nobody could have seen that coming. Glad we don't know anything about the guy who pretty much put the sequel trilogy into motion. He's just a nobody. No backstory, no importance, no explanation to where he's been all these years or why he decided to step up when he did. Okay, we eventually do get an explanation from Rise of Skywalker, so he's not just a nobody, but it's still a horrific explanation that only summons more questions, so just forget it. So Snoke is sliced in half, and his guards immediately start fighting Rey and Kylo Ren, who now team up. Why do the guards stop fighting them? Are they personally loyal to Snoke? Wouldn't they serve the First Order now? Even people who hate The Last Jedi tend to like this fight scene in Snoke's throne room, but there's an editing problem I haven't been able to unsee. One of the guards has a knife to raise back, and then when they move slightly, the knife disappears. They edited the knife out of this one moment to save Rey, rather than choreographing the fight differently or giving the guards different weapons. That is laziness at its finest. And all of this ignores the fact that a week ago, Rey was sitting on Jakku's scavenging junk to survive. She has not had any lightsaber training at all. Recall that in the original trilogy, Luke didn't have any lightsaber battles in A New Hope. And even after a year, he's not really comfortable with his lightsaber until training with Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. In the prequels, we meet Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan after they've been training for years at the outset of The Phantom Menace. And by Attack of the Clone, not only has it been years, but Anakin has been training with the Jedi the whole time. So his lightsaber abilities can be believed. I'm only bringing this up because some corners of the internet absolutely refuse to tolerate it when you bring up Rey's status as a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is a term for a character, or a female character, the male term is Gary Stew, but it's a character in literature, or any form of script writing, who has no flaws, succeeds at everything without setback, and everyone just sort of likes. The fact that Rey can fairly easily handle herself with a lightsaber against six highly trained elite warriors when she has not had five minutes of lightsaber training is a point in the Mary Sue argument. 
Oh, and this is not just a Ryan Johnson problem. I could list all the things Rey magically knows how to do in The Force Awakens, spearheaded by her best in Kylo Ren in a lightsaber battle at the end of the movie, but it is in this movie too. After they kill all the guards, Kylo Ren tells Rey that the two of them should rule their own faction in the galaxy and leave behind the First Order and the Resistance to, you know, form a new one ruled by both of them. This movie really dives into the Raylo stuff, which is kind of cringy, especially seeing as The Force Awakens pretty solidly pushes Rey and Finn as the cute couple instead of Rey and the genocidal psychopath. Needless to say, Rey rejects Kylo Ren's offer. Kylo then tells Rey what fans have been waiting to hear since they first saw The Force Awakens. Who were Rey's parents? Surprise, they were nobodies. In Kylo's words, filthy junk traders who are buried in a pauper's grave. This is a scene that perfectly represents that my issue with the movie is not subversion, it's subversion for the sake of subversion. Fans weren't obsessed with Rey's ancestry just because they were sweaty Star Wars nerds. They wanted to know how Rey expressed powerful force abilities within her first 10 minutes leaving Jakku. They wanted to know how she knew forced misdirection despite having never heard of it. They wanted to know how she spontaneously learned to speak Wookiee. How she masterfully did tricks with the Millennium Falcon when she'd never flown it before. How she defeated Kylo Ren when he had spent years training with the most powerful light side force user and the most powerful dark side user in the galaxy and she had left Jakku a couple of hours before. But let's pretend fans could explain all that away. In The Last Jedi, Rey is near tears when she makes the connection that her parents were nobodies. That's her words. They were nobodies. The problem here is that she's talking like she's one of the Star Wars fans and not like she's Rey the character in Star Wars. Yes, junk traders would be nobodies to the Star Wars fans. You know who wouldn't consider them nobodies? Rey. For Rey, the conflict was never about whether her parents were important galactic figures or anything like that. All she cared about was that they were parents and that they existed. Finding out they were junk traders wouldn't matter at all to her. And it certainly wouldn't reduce her to tears as though she was thinking, Dang, I was really hoping I was descended from Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke Skywalker, not some nobodies. But again, The Last Jedi writers seemed to not realize that. Actually, Maskinata gave Rey a little pep talk in The Force Awakens that pretty much boiled down to don't define yourself based on some people who abandoned you. Rey seemed to take it to heart. The Last Jedi could have tried developing Rey based on Rey herself, but this movie raises the parent figure from the dead and once again tries to have Rey find a father figure in Luke and act devastated when she learns the parents aren't celebrities. It's confusing, and it's messy. Kylo and Rey have a fight that ends with them splitting Anakin's lightsaber in half. Oh yeah, this movie's just way too respectful of the Star Wars source material. I could totally, totally see how critics felt that way, when you literally have these two morons destroying the very first lightsaber anyone ever saw on screen. At this moment, Holdo lightspeeds the Radish into the Supremacy, killing herself and severely damaging the Supremacy. I already dove into why this doesn't make any sense in terms of the pre-established lore, so I'll just move on and talk about how it impacts our heroes. I guess Kylo and Rey get knocked out, but of course, Rey wakes up first and runs off, presumably calling Chewbacca to let him know to stop doing donuts outside and come pick her up. Hux then gets his only legitimately interesting character moment in this whole movie, where he shows up and sees the unconscious Kylo Ren. He contemplates shooting him in the back of the head, and at that moment, Kylo stirs, so he puts away the gun. Hux tells Kylo that the Supreme Leader is dead, and Kylo repeats that the Supreme Leader is dead, but he says it more threateningly. I guess this is to establish himself as the head honcho of the First Order, and since Hux is pathetic now, he doesn't even put up a fight. The two get ready to go deal with the Resistance on their flight to Crate. Remember how I said the scene with Finn, Rose, and Phasma was one of the laziest examples of writing showing its strings? Well, first off, as I said, Phasma's decided not to shoot Finn and Rose, but instead we get weird sci-fi axes. So, while getting those axes ready, that's when the Radis slams into the ship. Not how convenient for Finn and Rose. But it's the aftermath of this attack that is truly unforgivable. Pre-lightspeed attack? Phasma and a legion of stormtroopers surround Finn and Rose, ready to execute them. After the attack, Phasma and all of the stormtroopers have teleported to the other side of the hangar, leaving Finn and Rose spared. It is impossible to miss once you've seen it, and it is a disaster. What respectable filmmaker does that? Oh dang, we need to have Finn and Rose survive this, but we need to have them surrounded by stormtroopers. Well, we could use the Radis Collision as an excuse to teleport every single stormtrooper across the room while not moving Finn and Rose at all. I will once again remind you, there are people out there who consider this film a masterpiece. Finn and Rose are fired upon by the stormtroopers, but then BB-8 finds his way onto an ATST and destroys all of them but Phasma. Why don't all the stormtroopers have her armor? Seems like it'd be pretty effective. Whatever. We then get another borderline criminal continuity error. We know Phasma has a gun because, again, she and her stormtroopers were firing on Finn and Rose. But after BB-8 demolishes all the other stormtroopers, 
Phasma and Finn enter a melee battle, and Phasma no longer has a gun. We never see it shot out of her hand or anything. She just doesn't have it because it would have been inconvenient. So we finally get the Phasma and Finn battle the fans have been hoping for since The Force Awakens. All we had to do to get here was have Phasma not easily execute Finn and Rosa Blasters, get teleported across the hangar, lose her entire squadron because a BB unit hacked into an ATST, and then have her own blaster vanish into thin air. Wonderful job, guys. Really, A-plus stuff. Finn's boss battle with Phasma is just as underwhelming as the contrived setup would have you believe. We get cringy lines from Finn calling Phasma Chrome Dome and calling himself Rebel Scum, despite the fact that he would have never heard that nickname for the original Rebels in his life, and that, at least on paper, the Rebels and the Resistance are supposed to be different things, but it made the audience go woo, so I guess it got into the script. Cool. Naturally, despite the fact that Phasma has superior armor and years of combat training under her belt, and Finn was a First Order janitor who failed his first combat mission a week ago, Finn wins the fight. The burning hangar collapses under both of them, and... In a fittingly contrived end to an extremely contrived scene, Finn lands on another safe platform while Phasma falls into the inferno, officially dead for real. I remember when people were really excited when they learned we hadn't seen the last of Phasma in The Force Awakens, myself included. Given that her scene may be the most contrived in the entirety of The Last Jedi, I can't imagine anybody's happy with the death of this completely wasted character. The Resistance lands on Crate and prepares to defend the fortified rebel base by hunkering down. The ground is all white on crate, but it's actually salt, not snow. However, the writers were apparently paranoid that cynical Star Wars viewers would point out that they already had seen a rebel faction hunkering down on a white planet in the second movie of a trilogy, and to assure viewers that this was not snow, they have a resistance fighter actually reach down, taste the salt, and say salt out loud, to confirm to the viewers that it is salt. Imagine if you were a soldier stationed in Yemen or something, and your squad mate knelt down, tasted the sand on the ground, and said, Sand. That would be an insane person, right? A First Order ship goes flying down into the old rebel base just as they're closing the doors, and all the Resistance members start firing at it with their blasters like freaking trained dogs. Of course, in a stroke of luck, it's actually Finn Rose and BB-8. I guess I can buy that they were sent the coordinates of the rebel base, which is how they were able to find it on a giant planet, but they just barely got in before the vault doors closed, so... Again, how convenient. The Resistance sends out a distress signal to all concerned parties in the galaxy. Reminder, the galactic government and billions of innocent civilians were obliterated a few days earlier. So you'd think a lot of folks would care about that. Especially considering the First Order just lost its planet-sized death ray. But nobody shows up to help because screw world building. And even worse, the First Order shows up. And two more bits of complete ridiculous contrivance plot against the Resistance. First... BB-8 and C-3PO scan the Rebel base, and they announce that the only possible exit is the main entrance, meaning they're stuck in there with no help coming. And second, not only has the First Order shown up, but they also conveniently have a cannon that is specifically designed to destroy the walls of this base that they didn't know existed an hour ago. Because this is The Last Jedi, so of course that's the case. So, with their specially designed cannon and a fleet of AT-ATs, the First Order is ready to make quick work of the Resistance once and for all, but they won't go down without a fight. They use old airspeeders to try and fight back, but this is pitiful, as their ships are quickly shot down by approaching TIE fighters. Then the Millennium Falcon swoops in with Rey, Chewie, R2-D2, and all their new Porg friends finally joining in the fight. Kylo Ren orders every single TIE fighter to stop firing at the last of that resistance, and instead fire at his father's old ship. The joke is stated by Finn. Man, they hate that ship! See, get it? Kylo Ren hates the Millennium Falcon so much that he'll inadvertently let the Resistance destroy the First Order's extremely important cannon, in the same way that this movie destroys the other kind of cannon. <laughs> Eventually, the AT-ATs snap back to, to attention and destroy the Resistance airspeeders one after another until Poe finally decides it isn't worth it and orders everyone to turn to base. Everyone listens, except for Finn, who charges Han ahead all by himself. Finn started this movie ready to run away, and now he's prepared to die just to slam his airspeeder into the cannon and prevent it from taking the lives of his friends. Now, there are a lot of issues with this scene. For one, we get a clear shot of Finn's airspeeder rushing towards the cannon, and the multiple ATHs are simply looking on. They're not shooting because the script told them this is an important scene for Finn, so they can't shoot him. Plus, it makes DJ's purpose in the film completely unnecessary, as his point in Finn's development, if you can call it that, was to tell him that the First Order and the Resistance are both pretty much the same, there's good and bad on both sides. This would have made Finn less likely to sacrifice his life for the Resistance, not more, so I assume the writers also accepted that Finn's subplot was completely worthless other than his scene in the Radis and his scene here. 
Regardless of all the serious issues, Finn is having a genuine moment in his sacrifice. He will blow up the cannon with his own airspeeder, and without the cannon, the First Order will be unable to break into the impenetrable walls of the Rebel base, potentially giving Finn's friends time to think of another plan or signal for more help to arrive. The light of the cannon becomes blinding. Finn closes his eyes and accepts his own death, dying for a righteous cause. <sighs> when out of nowhere, Rose slams into him with her own airspeeder. We don't see her approaching in the aforementioned clear shot that showed Finn as the only person left in the battlefield, and we don't get any explanation as to why Rose slamming her airspeeder into Finn's airspeeder doesn't blow them both up. But yeah, Rose stops Finn's sacrifice, and the two airspeeders go crashing to the side, where the AT-ATs continue to ignore them. Much like the entire audience, Finn asks Rose why she did what she did, and Rose responds with a contender for the worst line in the entire Star Wars franchise just for how it completely misunderstands the conflicts of the Star Wars themselves. I saved you. That's how we win. Not by destroying what we hate, but by saving what we love. As though nobody in the Star Wars universe fights out of a desire to save what they love. What about Rose's sister? She destroyed the Dreadnought, a thing she hated, and she died for it to protect what she loved. As though to prove how ridiculous this argument is, while Rose is saying this freaking line, we see the cannon firing and destroying the walls of the last holdout of the Resistance. The movie is literally proving Rose wrong as she's talking. Speaking of, she proceeds to give Finn a passionate kiss. Again, I thought it was pretty clear that the direction seemed to be moving towards Finn and Rey, not Finn and Rose and Rey and Kylo, but whatever, and then she passes out. Off screen, Finn proceeds to drag her unconscious body across this pure white salty earth, and of course, not a single AT-AT bothers to shoot at them. Kylo gets ready to close in on the resistance, when who shows up but Luke Skywalker. He shares a brief moment with Leia that is unsurprisingly one of the best moments of the movie, and there's actually more to it that was cut from the vinyl version because we don't deserve to have happiness. He also gives her Han's dice from the Millennium Falcon, which doesn't mean much since they later disappear, for reasons that will be obvious in a minute. And they were also a gift from Han's ex-girlfriend, as we learned in Solo, so I doubt Leia would really want to hold on to them. Luke steps out of the Resistance base to deal with the First Order. The AT-ATs finally remember what they're there for and fire at Luke. When the smoke clears, though, Luke is fine, even wiping his shoulder as if to say, that's all you got? Furious, Kylo himself steps out of his AT-AT to deal with Luke personally. He yells at him, and Luke gives the meme response of, amazing, everything you just said was completely wrong. Then Kylo angrily swings at him with a lightsaber, but Luke masterfully dodges his every stroke. At this point, the Resistance realizes Luke is just buying time for them to escape. In fact, Luke isn't even on crate. He's projecting himself all the way from his island on Octu using the Force. Kylo manages finally to land his lightsaber, and Luke reacts as though it was an unpleasant attack, but it goes right through him, and Kylo learns about Luke's tricks as his old master's projection whimsically fades away. I think I'd rather have it where Luke shows up in person, maybe stops the AT-AT blasts midair or redirects them or something, and then actually has a true fight with his former student. I also think he would be much more apologetic to Kylo for failing him, pitying the direction his life has taken, rather than offering sarcastic, snarky quips. But whatever. With the time Luke bought the Resistance, they realize that there is another way out of the cave despite the fact that the droids scanned it earlier and found no other way out, because at that point, the script needed the stakes raised, and now the script needs the Resistance to get out. It is literally some of the most cynical writing I've ever seen in my life. They follow some crate creatures through winding tunnels and eventually get on the other side, where the Millennium Falcon's waiting for them, because apparently they were also able to find the same escape point. The entire Resistance is now small enough to fit in the Millennium Falcon, and they all pack in and blast off into space to fight another day. Meanwhile, Luke Skywalker dies. Okay, it's kind of a cool-looking scene. Stares in the dual suns of Octu, which obviously harkens back to when he stared in the dual suns at Tatooine at the beginning of his first adventure. And then he fades off. And depending on who you're reading or what you're hearing, it's either due to the quote-unquote wound he got from Kylo or due to the stress projecting himself across the galaxy took out of him. It's unclear. But what is clear is Luke Skywalker is dead, having only slightly, barely begun to redeem himself after the nosedive his character took from The Return of the Jedi to this godforsaken movie. Then we get a brief scene to that random slave boy on Canto Bite. It's revealed that he's Force-sensitive. And if I'm right in my theory that he's pissed off about the Republic ignoring his squalor for years, and about Finn and Rose choosing not to break him out of slavery, then he's probably going to be the next big bad in the next trilogy. And now the movie's over. Hallelujah! What a dumpster fire. It frustrates me to no end that this is considered so much better than Rise of Skywalker. 
even a masterpiece among all nine Star Wars movies, when it is on par with Episode Nine, if not worse. I get the desire for a subversive cinematic experience, but The Last Jedi takes interesting questions posed by The Force Awakens and just craps on them. What happens to Finn after his horrible lightsaber injury? Nothing. Who was Snoke? Nobody. As though that answers the main questions of who this gigantic, ultra-force-powerful dark side user just rose up out of nowhere and sent the sequel trilogy into motion. Who were Rey's parents? Nobody's, as though that fact would matter to Rey. There is a profound failure to understand pre-existing characters. Finn suffers no injuries from Kylo Ren's stab wound, and he can now fly a ship. Hux is a bumbling, spineless idiot. Leia can fly through space, and is totally okay with Holdo not telling anyone her plan to save the Resistance. Luke Skywalker almost murdered his innocent nephew because he sensed the dark side in him after changing the entire course of the Rebellion trying to save Darth Vader. He also refuses time and time again to help his sister and her resistance. Rey spontaneously does want to save Kylo Ren, despite the fact that the first and only time she ever met him, she killed her new father figure. She also knows how to swim now. But hey, give some credit to the new characters that they also butchered. Rose has a kindergartner's idea of how conflict works forcing people to stay with the Resistance, freeing the animals instead of the slaves, and stopping Friend from disabling the First Order's only method of destroying the Rebel base. Holdo walks around military conditions in a ball gown with dyed purple hair and refuses to tell anyone her plan for saving the last of the Resistance. She also insults Poe multiple times before inexplicably revealing she's always liked him. DJ is a master codebreaker and jailbreaker who sits around in jail cells all day until Finn and Rose meet him. He demands no payment from our heroes, but sings like a canary when offered money by the First Order. It all begs the question, why are there people who think that this sequel trilogy in general is better than the prequel trilogy? I think it's the flashiness. The Star Wars prequel trilogy is a lot of things, but it is not a visual darling. The special effects are aged and often awkward. The acting leaves a lot to be desired. In contrast, the best part of the sequel trilogy by far is the visual stuff. The special effects are fantastic and quite polished. I mean, in this movie alone, the best-looking scenes hold those lights speeding into the supremacy, Luke looking out at the two sons, Luke's conversation with Yoda. These are some of the best-looking scenes in the entire franchise. And say what you will about the garbage script they were given, but I don't really have anything against the cast, either. I think Oscar Isaac, Adam Driver, John Boyega, Kelly Marie Tran, Gwendolyn Christie, Domhnall Gleeson, and even Daisy Ridley do perfectly serviceable jobs, to say nothing of the returning giants like Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Frank Oz, and Anthony Daniels. No, The Last Jedi's problems seem to start and end with Ryan Johnson. That's not to say J.J. Abrams' Force Awakens is a masterpiece, but it at least leaves a lot of open questions for the next director. It also has some base level of respect for the Star Wars franchise. Meanwhile, The Last Jedi craps on almost every single character and ends with a tiny resistance all alone in a single ship. Nice work, guys. The Last Jedi is so awful, I'm kind of convinced Rise of Skywalker wound up so horrible because it had to cover up for all the massive problems that Episode Eight caused. And by the way, I'm never going to do an episode like this for The Rise of Skywalker since it is almost universally loathed. But I think it's high time that The Last Jedi joins this category of Star Wars movies. So let the five-year anniversary of the worst mainline Star Wars movie be an opportunity for us to turn the page, to move away from subversion for the sake of subversion, and to respect our old characters and develop solid, consistent new characters. I have a feeling Ryan Johnson's Star Wars trilogy will be staying in development hell for the foreseeable future, but if it actually does become a thing, and Ryan Johnson gets episodes 10, 11, and 12, well, God help us. You just listened to another episode of Geeks Crossing. What do you think about Star Wars and about The Last Jedi? Let us know in our Discord server or DM us on Instagram. Link is in the description of this episode. As always, please continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether that be on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, or any other major podcasting platforms. Be sure to tell your friends and family about us, especially any Star Wars fans in your life. And if you really can't get enough of us geeks, support the others on Twitch. Keith at Nuclear Bacons, Nick at CryptoLockGaming, and Eric at Eman the Legendary, which is also the name of his YouTube channel where you can watch more concise clips of his streams. Our favorite fifth member, Tyler, is also on Twitch at CarrotBiteGaming. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Matt, and the Supreme Leader is dead! <laughs>